Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast, and we are back from Monday, and I don't know about you guys, but after four years and three quarters, I still can't get used to this new opening song. I gotta find a new one. That's another conversation for another time. Jeff, Henry, how are you guys doing? Good. 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 Good, good, good. Good. We're all, good. We're all doing good. We're all doing fine. Before we get down to brass tacks, we need to talk about something very important, fellas. We can't allow our listeners to make a mistake because chances are they're listening to this tomorrow morning on the way to work. And they forgot. They haven't checked their calendars. They didn't set a reminder. No one dropped any hints. As you're listening to this, it's Valentine's Day. So you better detour to the Walgreens, the Walmart, the Publix, the Piggly Wiggly, wherever you pick up your current Valentine's Day or birthday cards and get yourself a card. Don't get the cho- don't get that waxy ash chocolate. And your lady doesn't want that. No. Hopefully you planned ahead, but if you didn't, better scramble at lunch. Make a detour on the way home. Because heaven forbid, if you show up at the house with nothing, not a empty hands, nothing but a smile, you're going to get a very cold dinner and a bad look <laughs> on her face. So, uh, just a little helpful hint from me, Jeff and Henry, to all of you guys listening, <laughs> driving to work. I think we've been married long. I mean, I've been married long enough to certainly know that, and I'm sure you guys have too. We've got a lot of young <laughs> listeners, though. I'm, I'm reaching out to our community. We're trying to do a community service here. All you young if guys. You, okay. If you're getting your Valentine at a Piggly Wiggly, <laughs> it's already done. It's over. That doesn't, that doesn't fly. <laughs> hey, that doesn't fly. There's, there's a bar. Hey, you know, there's a bar that has to be met, and now, what Jeff just said does not meet that bar. But Jeff is, out of the three of us, Jeff lives the closest to the middle of nowhere, but I'm assuming we have listeners who live even further in the middle of nowhere. And besides, who are we to judge people's taste? I once saw a man propose to this old lady in the fire lane of Walmart in North Fort Myers. Who am I to judge? She was happy. She was thrilled. So, hey, maybe you know a secret. Maybe there's a, a nice... I don't know. Does Piggly Wiggly even sell like a cheesecake <laughs> or a French <frenzel> pie? <laughs> Maybe you can get a late pumpkin pie or a nice Dutch apple pie. But uh, I don't think she'd be happy you came home with a, a card and a Dutch apple pie either. <laughs> but you never know. It's each their own. So uh, as you're starting your day listening to this podcast, just you got a few more hours to, to figure something out in the last minute. Thanks for upping the the tension level on that too. By the way, that's that's great. Yeah. Just gotta put that out there, a little beacon from us to you guys, a little a little radio, a little SOS, a little dot dot dash dash, and all that good stuff. But anyhow, fellas, how are you all doing? What's new in your all's world? I got my Valentine taken care of, man. I mean, you know, with our schedules, a Valentine's Day on a Tuesday. Isn't that romantic? Uh, Nothing spells romance like a Tuesday. Yeah, so at least it was on we, Wednesday. We, at least if it was on a Wednesday, there'd be jokes to be made. Oh, it's hump day, <laughs> but no, yeah, it's, it's really. a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we had our we had our fun on Saturday night and got her what she wanted, and then something else that I didn't even know she wanted that just kind of fell in our lap—a puppy. Oh, <gasps> ooh, we like the dogs. <sighs> what kind of puppy you got? All right, so <laughs> well, we 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 uh, friends of ours, former Marine, actually lives around here. Um, they, uh, they've got, uh, Aussie Shepherds mm-hmm. and, and Basset Hounds. 
and, and mom and dad are, are registered, you know, uh, AKC. And he said, look, man, I, I thought this was going to be the ugliest dog in the world. <laughs> oh, no. It's literally the complete opposite. Okay. It, this is the, literally the cutest puppy ever. So you ever have that existed. You got a dog that ears turn off when its nose turns on, but it's very loyal and likes to hurt things. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much yeah it's gonna be and well it's a mini there it's a it's a miniature aussie and i guess it's technically not even aussie it's an american well he's gonna aussie. be miniature if he's part bassett anyhow so he's gonna have some well right thick, he's gonna have a thick undercarriage if he's got bassett in him right but that's the thing that the, the the coat stays a lot shorter they're not like tripping and eating their own ear kind of thing it's a right. neat looking dog really beautiful colors and what she wanted why do we not hear him what's his name well, so he's only four weeks. Oh, so okay, so you don't have layaway. Any... Yeah, he came. He came over with with four of them. We yeah, got to pick okay. which one. Nah, and then he's yeah, gonna yeah. Deliver two more weeks. So, but uh, yeah, we we just we just called him Moose, and it stuck. Because <laughs> he nice. just looks like he's gonna be big, fat, and lazy. Well, see, I'm glad you brought that up because all like Don's just wearing it out with with Jasper and. Bailey and my wife's loving all that and I'm commenting on it and loving it. So I'm like, man, I know where Don stands on dogs. I know I love dogs more than people. So it's nice to know that Jeff has joined the fray. You know, oh, the... I've always had a dog. I just, okay. You know, I didn't I, know that. He just keeps it close know, to the vest. I'm terrible. I'm terrible with like any kind of social media or actually like portray, like what I'm trying to tell people and what they're seeing in pictures and like the message they're trying to it, it's just discombobulated for me. Like I just show pictures like, hey, guess what? I have a kid that turned four today or whatever. Like, oh you have a you have kids? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like I'm not good with that. I'm terrible. So it is what it is. You know, the irony is is I'm such a dog lover that hypothetically I should be terrified of. Them. I don't know if I've ever told this story here. So when I was growing up and we had our defunct farmhouse in Kentucky, which is now nothing but a White Castle, two pilot truck stops, and a defunct Holiday Inn. Thanks, Nan Ann, for selling the property. But anywho, um, I was coming home from school one day, and there was a Malamute tied to our tree in our front yard. Hmm. Mom must have got a new dog. Wasn't a rare occasion. My grandmother bred German Shepherds and Pekingese, and my aunt used to show and breed Shepherds, and so I come from a family of dogs, and my sister's petting this Malamute. And I pet it, and some bitch jumps on my head and t t jumps on me and tears my head open. Luckily, he was on a uh, leash. My brother hit it with the pole from the clothesline, drug me out of the radius of the of the chain. My mom was like four cars behind the school bus heading home. It was Kentucky, middle of October. To this day, I can remember freezing my ass off because my mom sprayed me down with a water hose to see where I was bleeding from. And mm. I, I was only in kindergarten, maybe first grade, and I can still remember laying on the gurney getting staples in my head. I had like 63 staples in my head. This damn dog damn near killed me. Jeez. And you would think someone who lived through that, I I love damn dogs. Um, don't know what it is, but did not scare me off of them one bit. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, that's enough yeah. hot dog talk on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. We're going to get down to brass tacks. Um, do you want to get to the subject? Do you want to go to that? Should we do a little early mail call real quick to get that out of the way so we don't forget? I vote mail call. Henry. Let's do an early do mail think? call. Yeah, do do the mail call, man. Yeah. Read the read the email. And while Jeff cleans his palate, we're gonna say we do want to hear from you. So if you have any comments, suggestions, critiques, or whatnots, email us at mailcall at wtspworldwar2.com, and your words will come through Jeff's mouth in such elegant way. And those ways are ready to go. Here he goes with this week's mail call. Oh. 
Oh, I'm reading it. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that. Okay, so... This comes from DJ in Charleston, South Carolina. Hello, gentlemen. Thoroughly enjoyed the podcast. I enjoy listening to the new episodes when they drop. Love to watch on YouTube, but I'm going to bed around the time of the show, so I just enjoy while I'm working. Uh, it helps me get through the day and is always so entertaining. I especially like when you share the books you are reading, which is the what you're reading segment, right, Don? Uh, I'm a big-time reader. When I have free time, it's what I love to do. All I read is World War II history, mostly, and for the most part, it's PTO, but not exclusively. So when you share books, it's right up my alley. Wasn't sure if any of you fellas, I think it's supposed to say use Goodreads. Correct. I keep track of all I have read, but I want to read and what I'm currently reading. If you have one, I'd love to follow you so I can see what you all have read for new ideas. I'm always on the hunt for my next read. Also, I know you have been reading Big Week and Wing and a Prayer, not about the air war. Well, I just finished up Brave Men by Ernie Pyle. There was a passage when he was talking about being bombed by our own heavy bombers as the U.S. was launching the breakout of Normandy and the planes being hit by flak. Thought it was worth sharing. If you haven't read the book, it's wonderful. Pyle was a gifted writer, correspondent, and died doing what he loved on Okinawa. Here's the excerpt below. Sorry if it's long, but it's so worth the read. Take care, DJ from Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, nice. Interesting that he mentions Okinawa. What a perfect segue, right? Absolutely. So, um, you know, uh, our listeners may or may not probably realize how not so organized we are sometimes. And hey, what are we gonna what are we gonna do? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Okay, let's do it. And it always comes out great. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, well, sometimes it's better that way. Well, right? and that's how you know we're not like phoning this in, or not like lifting material from other podcasts or anything, because you know we don't do any real show prep. I'm in here like an hour before the show starts, just uh, pull clips and whatnot. But other than that, uh, we we fly by the seat of our britches around here. Yeah, I think, and I think we do it well. So, um, in preparation for tonight's episode, I came across a story that uh, I just I'm so excited because it's so brand new and it's fresh, and I just can't wait to share it with everybody. And it's it's got a little bit of a neat backstory. So uh, months ago, and, and I may have shared this with our listeners, um, you know, uh, the library, anytime they have books that they're just doing away with, they kind of let me go through the trash before it goes out. It's a nice problem and to have. It's pretty cool. And uh, there were three old books. And she said, look, I don't know what you'd want to do with them. This is the library director. Uh, she said, it's not going to offend me if you don't want them, but we thought of you when we saw them. And she said, you know, if you want to take a look. So um, let me let me grab it. This is the 1928 The Longhorn. Now, for us today, that probably sounds like a strange name for a yearbook out of Texas A&M. Of course, uh, the Longhorn, uh, as we know from the University of Texas, a big rival. Uh, but the Longhorn was the name of the yearbook now, up until about 1946. For you guys listening to the audio version of this, Jeff's holding up this book, big-ass book, that almost looks like the book from Army of Darkness. <laughs> I don't know if that's rawhide on the cover of that thing. It looks like it's bound in, in flesh. I mean, it's a it, huge yeah. book. <laughs> it's but they're beautiful they're beautiful yes. so the reason they were called the longhorn so they started in 1903 uh, calling it the longhorn and 
it was to kind of, I guess, um, pay homage to the Longhorn State. This is before it was we were known as the Lone Star State. It was the Longhorn State. So that only made sense. And I think it's really interesting when you first open it up, there's a little message that says they will soon pass away those dreamy college days with a nice illustration here. And there's some color in here. Um, and I just thought that's interesting, those dreamy college days, because uh, we probably think, oh, gosh, how fast the world turns today. Oh, how time flies. And even, I'm sure, not that long ago, in 1928, that was not a, a new thing either to think that, oh, man, these these dreamy college days will soon, will soon pass away and we'll be off to the world. So I thought that was an interesting connection. Um, so there is a colleague of mine that teaches here at the high school. There's a few that, that, uh, are proud graduates of Texas A&M. And one of them happens to be a teacher of my son. And I flipped through this book and I saw that there were pictures of, there was a lot of girls in here, which I thought was strange coming from an all male school. And so she goes, oh, there can't, can't be, there can't be girls in there. So I said, well, I figured I'd go ahead and bring it to school one day. And can, I, can I guess? Let her take a look. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and guess. Was there a sister school and they merged the two to save money on pressing of your books? Best week. You know, I think that was actually what she had said as well. Um, the best we can guess, these are sweethearts. Oh. Uh, assuming from the senior class. I gotcha. And, yeah, and there was also a Duchess of the Cotton Palace, kind of a... Uh, Kind of a local uh, deal here, the A&M Duchess to the Cotton Palace. So here's, I know for our audio listeners, this isn't going to do much, but if you're watching, she's the a great photo, days. right? Let me From ask you this, as somebody who's working in education, um, and probably will have a few yearbook photos taken of yourself, do you see the template of the modern-day yearbook as you're looking through that, or was it substantially different in 1928 versus today? I mean, oh. the, the layout, the format of it? Because, I mean, yearbooks tend to have kind of a, a, a template. Yeah. No, I think very similar. Uh, you go through, of course, you go through all the faculty and everything, uh, and then you go through the senior classes. Now, what's interesting is they sometimes will show you where they're from. If they're not a, a you know native-born citizen, they may say that, you know, Korea or something like that. Um, but for the most part, just guys in uniform um, – what their major is, their age, um, their rank, of course, because you know at this time, if you were in in the corps here, you were you were in the military. Um, just but think not of, to get too far off on that. Well, I don't just get too far off on that. Well, I, you know me, I love a good rabbit hole. Just think though, those the, that faculty that you're looking at, the ones who are in their forties, they're born in 1888. <laughs> oh right, absolutely. Uh, Imagine most just of these the history are, that those guys yeah. saw. Right. And so thinking if these guys graduated in 1928, most of them were 23, 24, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at what? These guys are about 40 um, during the war. These, yep. are, these are potentially your light colonels, your full birds, your brigadiers, uh, one-star generals during, during World War II. So interesting. And for those who don't know much about Texas A&M and its history – it really is a special school, and, and if you know anything about the history of this, how they served the country, World War One and World War II, um, you should really look into it because, yeah, it's and it's about two hours from, from where I'm at. Um, so And, and it, I've had the opportunity to go up there. I was asked to speak at one of the classes there, which was really cool. This was years ago, and 
got to watch A&M whoop up on Iowa State at the old Kyle Field and just experience everything that is Texas A&M was just it was really moving. So um, moving forward, um, after I let my colleague kind of look through and she kind of helped, you know, translate some of this for me being an Aggie, um, she had mentioned that her um, she had two relatives that served in World War Two. One was from her mom's side. One was from her dad's side. And the interesting thing is these guys were buddies and served uh, on the island of Okinawa together. So uh, I want to share a little bit. Just kind of wanted to spotlight. And, and I have her permission and the permission from her family. I just wanted to kind of spotlight um, this, this particular veteran. And, um, you know, by the time this hits our website, there will be a picture of, of the veteran as well. And real quick, just because uh, Jeff's audio cut out for you guys listening, he said the island of Okinawa. When you said Okinawa, it cut out, but go ahead. Oh, okay. Was I being censored? Uh-oh. No, you're, you're, no, you're, it just, yeah, you, the feed you dropped out just for that one word. So I just wanted for people. Oh, what gosh. island did he say? Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes, Okinawa. So, um, so this, her maternal great uncle, is who we're really kind of uh, paying respects to. And I, I want to keep his, his history alive. His name was Sergeant Cecil Holycamp. Uh, he attended Texas A&M University, and he listed following Pearl Harbor, along with most of the cadets and, and students on campus. Uh, he was a member of the 96th Infantry, the Dead Eyes, in the 383rd Infantry Regiment, Company K. He was killed in action in April of 1945 during the Battle of Okinawa. And he said, according to her grandfather, her uh, great grandfather, it was by a sniper. The interesting thing here is his GI Bill was used by his family to rebuild Trinity Episcopal Church in Junction, Texas. Now that right there, I thought was really unique because you know a lot of times we say, "Oh, he bought the farm," mm-hmm. right? The, that's the, where the saying comes from. The, that's where the saying comes from, right? A lot of times, and we may have said this before, where, you know, the GI Bill went to the family and they literally would pay off the farm or any debts with what they got um, from, the you know, losing their son. So the fact that uh, his GI Bill was used to rebuild this church in Junction, Texas, was really kind of impressive to me. I've never heard of that before. I thought that was really interesting. So her paternal grandfather... Sergeant William Allen was best friends with Cecil. So from her mom's side, Cecil, and from her dad's side, this William Allen, they were best friends. They both attended A&M. They enlisted together. They were classmates in Aggieland. And uh, this guy was also a member of the 96th Infantry, but he served in the 381st, where her great-uncle served in the 383rd. Uh, He was awarded purple, uh, actually three Purple Hearts, and he had shrapnel in his brain until he died, and he was terrified of x-rays. He never talked about combat, and he dealt with a good deal of wrath from Cecil's mother since he came back without Cecil. He did tell his grandmother, though, that he recited the 100th Psalm in foxholes as a means of coping, and that he promised God that if he survived the war, he would never leave the ranch. With the exception of visiting granddaughters in Dallas, he kept that promise. And he told, uh, he told me, this being my colleague, that my grandmother saved his life now the interesting thing about cecil holy camp you can find him and he comes up um he was awarded the bronze star for bravery at Leyte, 
uh, and then and he was a machine gun uh, section sergeant on Okinawa, and uh, he is briefly, but he is mentioned in a book, uh, Texas. I want to say it was the Texas Aggies at War, where uh, and they kind of go through um, all of the fight in Texas Aggies that. Uh, I'm assuming all that were killed in action. That's all I could see as I was cruising through. But the section about um, Sergeant Cecil Holycamp was that he was leading his machine gun section on the on the morning of 9 April 1945 at Kakasu Ridge when he was killed in action. And uh, it was uh, his buddies wrote home that he was a good guy. He was a good friend. And that was what was written home to his family. Um, so, again, I included a picture she was nice enough to share a picture of Sergeant Cecil Holy Camp, and and um, he was also featured in the newspaper, of course, when it came out that he was killed in action in Okinawa. But all of a sudden, um, this really kind of became a little bit personal because um, again, this is just somebody I work with. This is an educator that you know that that works at the same high school as me, and and uh, you know teaches my son. And um, she also mentioned, of course. Aggies when they when they graduate, of course they get a ring. And she had recovered her um, Billy Allen's. The, he's the one who survived the Battle of Canal, and she has his ring that was very dirty when she had found it or when when she had gotten it, and um, it was it, you know in her estimation that dirt. Uh, she talked about digging foxholes in Okinawa. Uh, that was probably particles of Japanese soil that came home on that Aggie ring as well. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, and to just to see just an obscure, you know, just a face with a name, a guy in uniform, just doing his job, leading his machine gun at, at Kakasu Ridge at the beginning of what became the defensive perimeter on Shuri, uh, the Shuri line was just really interesting to me. And to think that these two buddies – one guy coming home, uh, you know, it's hard enough to come home, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I can't imagine it's got to be even harder when you come home, but your best friend doesn't. And, um, you know, you were that close to be able to still stay in contact, you know, with the family. So um, really awesome. I really appreciate her uh, sharing it with me and giving me the, um, you know, giving me the permission to share it with all of you. And um, if you're not sure what the Shuri line is or what Kakasu Ridge even means, I know that it was a meat grinder. They estimated 96 Infantry Division suffered 200% casualties, which is just unbelievable. And um, I think at this point, uh, I'd kind of like uh, for Henry to kind of fill in some gaps and really kind of paint the picture of what it was like from his perspective and, and his research on what it meant to be fighting in those early days of April in, in that particular part of Okinawa. Sure. I can, I can speak to that. I, I'd actually had looked up a couple passages here and with the old breed about when they got into Shuri, which was end of May. Um, but let's adjust on the fly here at Kakazu Ridge. I remember I have come across quite a bit of stuff where both published and unpublished where my dad talked about Kakazu Ridge. Um, you want me to buy to... you a few seconds? Yeah. Could you do that, please? For those of you not familiar with the Okinawa campaign, I'm by far no means an expert, but I did refresh myself a little bit. And 
as we've spoken in the past, one of the things that worked towards us as a benefit being the people fighting the Japanese is the Japanese, they had a lot of infighting within their military structure. And one of those infightings was the Navy and the Army just, they decided to do their own things at all different times and the other one had to play catch up. And so when it came to Okinawa, the Navy thought, hey, this would be the perfect place to whittle down the Americans, let's hold them off, let's try to take out as many of them as we can before they attack our homeland in Japan. The Army said, not so much, we're pulling out most of our forces. So believe it or not, Okinawa was only defended roughly by a little over 100,000 men, but a good portion of those were basically Okinawan citizens who were forced into military service, anything between the ages of 18 to 40. And a lot of the death count that Jeff kind of talked about earlier and that Henry will get to momentarily, a lot of that was basically because of the geographical location, the island that was made up. Um, the Japanese set up bunkers in the Okinawans' um, burial mausoleums. They had the, their way of remembering their dead was to put them in caves. And basically the Japanese took over those caves and entrenched guns there. And they basically had another thing that, gets into this is we're, we're all familiar with bonsai charges and kamikazes well the whole okinawa campaign from the <clears throat> japanese was based off of kamikazes the you know the wind obviously they had the kamikaze planes which by the way at that point uh, most kamikaze pilots only had three weeks to a month and a half of training they were basically just trained to take off and crash um they also had the bonsai charge that was a big part of their infantry and what I forgot and didn't realize is they actually had about 350 small boats packed full of explosives who were kamikaze boat crews. They were just to drive their little crafts out and try to blow up as many crafts as they could before they went out. And um, so it was a very hard-fought campaign. Um, casualties were high, once again, because of the fact that we were on the disadvantaged side of trying to perpetrate these natural caves, the horrible weather, Etc. And hopefully Henry is ready to go. I'm I'm ready to go. So after that that personal involvement, that personal story that Jeff just shared with us, um, let me just give a little historical context here. So this is reading from with the old breed. All right, the the portion of when my dad was doing a little strategizing and explaining to contextualize everything once they were really starting to get going on Okinawa. Of primary importance to the defense of the island were three east-west ridge systems crossing the southern part of the island. To the north and just below the invasion beaches lay the ridges of Kakazu and Nishibaru. In the middle, running west from Shuri Castle, was the most formidable of the ridges cut by sheer cliffs and deep draws. Above the extreme southern tip of the island lay Kanishi, Yuzadake, and Yezudake. Together, these ridges formed a series of natural defensive barriers to the American forces advancing from the north. Into these natural barriers, Lieutenant General Mitsuru Ushijima threw the bulk of his 110,000-man 32nd Japanese Army. Natural and man-made barriers were transformed into a network of mutually supporting positions linked by a system of protected tunnels. Each of the ridge lines was held in great strength until it became untenable. Then the enemy withdrew to the next defense line. Thus, the Japanese drew on their experiences at Peleliu, Saipan, and Iwo Jima to construct a highly sophisticated and powerful defense in depth. There they waited and fought to exhaust the will and the resources of the American 10th Army, of which the aforementioned 96th Infantry Division 
was part. And there's one little paragraph that I'll tack on to the end of this is later on where my father talks about, he says, meanwhile, three army divisions were coming up short against fierce Japanese resistance in the Kakazu Nishibaru ridgeline, the first of three main enemy defense lines in the southern portion of the island, stretched from left to right across Okinawa, the 7th, 96th, and 27th Infantry Divisions were getting more than they could handle and were making little progress in their attacks. And he's saying that in the context of for the... They landed April Fool's Day, and for, for quite a bit of time in, in early April, it, it was almost like a holiday. It was so completely unexpected. The, the landing was unopposed. Um, and it was just unexpectedly easy. But they knew that once they got down into the southern portion of the of the island of Okinawa, that the Japanese were not going to give it up cheap. Yeah, because part of that strategy, like I said earlier, the Army pulled out a good portion of their men. And so the men they had left, they put a few up in the northern part of Okinawa kind of just to slow us down a little bit. But a majority of their crew was manning the Shuri Line and then the southern end of the island so that they wouldn't get outflanked. And so, as Henry was saying, as we landed in the northern and the northeastern side, as we were coming down, it wasn't until we ran into this little little groups of um, basically roadblocks, if you will, that we started facing some interference, and that kind of withered us down and slowed us down before we got to Sherry Line, which things really, really um, got rough. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. and, I, and it's definitely you know um, I think it's important, and like Henry said, you know, with the the Marines and, and Army landing, or, or maybe Don said, you know, to try to coordinate that many divisions, that many men, and three different branches of the military. I mean, what, what a logistical nightmare. And, you know, the Marines, of course, first kind of uh, securing that northern end of the island were not nearly um, the defensive positions were more towards the south. So, of course, what was thought when the Army was hitting a brick wall, of course, the Marines were like, <laughs> let's go save the day. Um, so, yeah, I've got something here I wanted to share as well. It was a nice little write-up, just a little bit of a history of that fighting uh, right around that time, uh, as the Americans uh, advanced, pushed further south, it read headlong into fortified Japanese positions and heavily defended caves near Kakasu Ridge, the first defensive perimeter, and what would be called the Shuri Line. The rapid advance and rightly and relatively light American casualties sustained so far on Okinawa ended. American commanders realized immediately that the Japanese had been withholding their strongest defensive efforts and had deployed them in an area in which the terrain favored the defenders. There would be no more lightning advances. In a period of just 24 hours, American casualties ashore nearly doubled. Okinawa was realized would become a bloody slugfest. The Army's 96th Infantry Division lay before Kakasu Ridge on the morning of April 8, 1945, and prepared to make an assault on the positions that had halted their initial advance. With no preparatory artillery barrage, the two companies of infantry jumped off from their positions before daybreak so as to achieve surprise. One company from the 96th, under the command of Lieutenant Willard Mitchell, reached the top of Kakasu Ridge before Mitchell and his men were pinned down by furious Japanese fire. The Americans were unable to dig in on the rough coral tops of Kakasu and thus were exposed to well-aimed rifle fire and shrapnel from all angles. The Japanese, knowing they had their enemy at their mercy, sprang from their caves, hurling grenades and satchel charges at the pinned-down American infantry. The Japanese assault was halted with heavy, with heavy losses. Mitchell's men repelled the Japanese assault in hand-to-hand -hand combat with fixed bayonets and rifle butts. Now, this is 8 April 1945. The very next day, 9 April, would be 
Sergeant Cecil Holocamp's last day. And I wanted to show for those who are watching, this is the patch of the 96th Infantry Division, the Dead Eyes. So really, really I've never cool seen that story. Yeah. Yeah, it's a neat one. Um, so again, thank you to the family uh, for allowing me to share that. And uh, Henry, really thanks for um, you know, really going into an explanation and just knowing, um, you know, your dad was there, um, right there with somebody, um, that, you know, I run into being a relative of just really kind of ties things a little bit closer for me and, and in the, uh, you know, keeping history alive. So, um, and what a great mail call from our buddy in Charleston, South Carolina, talking about Okinawa. I thought that was great. And Okinawa was, I mean, Rough sledding, not only as we said the the fighting against the Japanese, but the 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 mud, the living conditions, the rain. But as we said, um, a a good portion of the military was conscripted Okinawans, and part of the way the Japanese got them to fight, other than to do the horrible things which they were known for back then, is brainwashing and fanaticism. Um. If anybody's done any reading or watched any specials on Okinawa, you know what happens once we started liberating villages and towns and areas that the Okinawans were so brainwashed by the Japanese that they were told that the American Marines and American Army were cannibals and criminals and rapists and thieves. And so as we're trying to liberate, and, and that's the other thing too, is up until this point, there was very little. I mean, there were some, but not by no means this caliber of uh, civilian areas. I mean, there's a lot of civilians involved. And as we saw portrayed in the uh, in the episode on the Pacific, they're all held down at the bottom of that ravine and these civilians are coming down and we've all heard the stories about the grenades and the using them as bait, machine gun fire and all that. The Japanese by no means had any real care for their fellow man, let alone the Okinawans. And so as we're liberating places, um, people like Henry's father and the gentleman Jeff's talking about, they're watching mothers throw their babies over and then jumping over cliffs because they were afraid that we were going to do horrible things to them after we liberated them. And so not only do you have to deal with what you saw in combat, but then you had to you had to sit there and look at that at the end of the day. It's just a rough environment all the way around. Yeah, for sure. And then if I could jump in real quick Please. and say this, if, if you're interested in hearing more about Okinawa, there's a great book by my friend Saul David called Pacific Crucible. And it is strictly about the Battle of Okinawa. Um, it's it, it fairly recently written, too. It just came out in the last year and a half, maybe two years. I can't remember the sergeant's name. Sorry. But he had a relative. He fought in the Civil War for the South. And I've seen photos, and I've read the article, but I can't remember the gentleman's name. When we actually captured Siri Castle... No one had an American flag available on at that particular time. So while a person went back to find one, he actually pulled out a Confederate flag that he had in his haversack and flew it over Siri Castle for a short period of time, um, much like his, his grand, great-grandfather would have done during, during the Civil War. That's right here with the old breed. You want me to sure. hit that paragraph? Absolutely. About mid-morning on 29 May, 3-5 attacked the Shuri with Company L and the lead in Companies K and I following closely. Earlier in the morning, Company A, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, had attacked eastward into the, rain, the ruins of Shuri Castle and had raised the Confederate flag. 
When we learned that the flag of the Confederacy had been hoisted over the very heart and soul of Japanese resistance, all of us Southerners cheered loudly. The Yankees among us grumbled, and the Westerners didn't know what to do. Later, we learned that the stars and stripes that had flown over Guadalcanal were raised over Shuri Castle, a fitting tribute to the men of the 1st Marine Division who had the honor of being first into the Japanese citadel. Jeff mentioned earlier that um, when the relatives got his Aggie ring, had the dirt and the mud on it. And my first thought was, is, you know, that shows you how much love they had for their state and their school because as we know from watching many series, not all of them did, but a lot of guys wore the Marine Corps ring. And this, and he opted to wear his Aggie ring. But I, the question I had for you, Henry, is do you still have your your father's ring? Or did he, was that a movie thing? Or did he actually wear his ring through combat as as portrayed in the miniseries? That, that was a movie thing. I do have a ring back there in the back room, a gold Marine Corps ring that was his. He did wear it, but he didn't get it till after the war. Gotcha. So I got to be honest about that. Well, that whole thing with the ring, I'm, you'd think that I would know how that, where that originated from, and I, I'm just really not sure because they made a big deal about showing that like a little signet ring that that Joe Mazzello wore, and I, I don't think that my dad wore anything like that. While we're on the subject of um, the show and true and false of Hollywood versus reality. Um, what about the EGA on the lapel? Was that something he, him and Sid Phillips actually he, did? Yeah, he he did. He did. Because he says that there's not one on that dungaree jacket right there, but he did have one um, because he talked about it before hitting Peleliu. That's a cool little little artifact, though. If Since we had talked about Shuri Castle, this is a sake cup. I know our listeners can't really see it but this is a sake cup that my dad picked up in the ruins of shuri wow if you could take a, a nice clean photo of that we'll put it up on the website so that the audio listeners okay. can share and same thing with your book jeff if you could maybe take a picture of that cover and maybe just one or two of the pages that way our audio listening people don't feel like they're missing out on anything that's a good point and this is and you know you guys have seen all this but this is the japanese nco um samurai sword that he also picked up in the ruins of Shuri. And so, how long do you think that thing is? Three uh, and a half, four feet? Yeah, about that. Three, three, four. Now, I don't know the amount of time before they got picked up between the Battle of Siri Castle and and when they left, but that's not exactly a non-cumbersome thing to carry around with all, especially when you're lugging mortar gear around. I mean, yeah. add that to your pack. I mean, I'm I guess he could have put it across the top, but that's just one more thing to actually have to lug around with you when and you're already pri- I mean, pri- look, they're, prioritizing your gear. There is you guys probably know better than I do. They're they're people who just they can tell you everything about samurai sabers. Yeah, I'm not one of them. Everything. I mean, in that one, there's it's an NCO, a Japanese NCO. It's not an officer. It didn't have a jewel in the hilt. It's a very simple, very basic, but you know. Um, well, it's, I don't want to say crazy. It's in, it's cool. And especially for the Japanese culture, how much they relied on that samurai aspect of the religion, because mm-hmm. even when I was watching clips on Okinawa and they were talking about how they were using all the old planes and 
poorly trained, bad pilots to be kamikaze pilots. They shoot them getting in the cockpit with that sword. Yeah. Your first thing is, what are you going to do with that up there? But it's it's more of kind of, to them, it's their their crucifix around the necklace. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was never, you know, we've heard tales where sometimes a saber was drawn, but most of the time it was just there to to connect them with their religion and, and their belief system. Yeah, I was yeah. just, I was just uh, looking. I've got my mother-in-law gave me a sword that, you know, I when I first saw it, it looked like, oh, maybe this is like Civil War era, you know, 19th century. Turns out my son was like, hey, Dad, uh, I think that's a Japanese sword. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> and uh, he goes, no, check it out. Look. And I want to say, and I, I wish I could grab him. I want to say it was Type 32. Maybe huh. that sounds familiar. Um, it looks like it's been spray painted black, um, but it's in pretty decent shape. And I, I'm trying to remember what the heck. You're I usually down by the hilt of most cutlery, whether it's a sword, a knife, or whatnot. There's usually a maker's marker, some sort of indicator yeah. that might give it a little prominence, as they like to say. It might, you know, while we're on the subject, let me, let me, I'm going to take a quick break. Let me see if I can grab it real quick for y'all. See if you can tell me something about it. I don't know the first thing about swords, but I'd like to see it regardless. And while Jeff is doing that, I want to remind you guys, I want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And I want to thank all the new listeners that are heading over and sign up for Patreon. That goes a long way to support what we do here. Um, even if you only sign up, for, I don't even want to say only, even if you sign up for just the dollar count, amount count, which is all all we're uh, wanting you to do. There's two other plans on there, but uh, if you want to sign up for those, great. If you sign up for the $7.50 a month plan, we will send you a free t-shirt after a month too, which by the way, for those of you watching on video, you look down in the corner, that's our new WTSP logo. And for some of you on your podcast app, some of them have updated, some of them have not. iTunes has not for some reason, but Google and Spotify show the new logo. We have that new shirt, logo available on shirts, hats, towels. Um, Henry sent me a message, and I will say this. I am a bit of a hat snob, and I don't get to choose the material in which this stuff gets printed on. Um, all this mm-hmm. stuff is print to order. We don't buy any of the stuff. It's when you order it, they usually wait three or four days to see anybody else orders, and they print, and they mail it directly to you. That way I'm not buying boxes of T-shirts and hats to sit around my house. It's mailed to order, and... Um, and so I'm limited on what material they have. And since I'm a hat snob, I don't like crappy hats. Working in radio, uh-huh, there's been you? so many times someone will give me a hat with their company name on it. And it may have be a cool logo, but if the hat bill has three stitching on it, it's going to be folded. It's going to be cardboard that doesn't hold a fold. Usually they have Velcro straps on the back. Those are the ones that people cut corners on. No, they don't fit very well. No one wears them, so it's a huge waste of money. So they had three options. They had... The trucker hats, which had the normal snapbacks, then they had what looks like to be flat bill hats. You could probably curve them. And then they had the dad hats, which had the crappy bills and the Velcro. I did not even bother to put those up because I did not want people to spend their hard-earned money on that particular hat and find out that it's rubbish. So there's a trucker hat and what appears to be flat bill, but you can probably curve. And those look like nicer hats. The beach style I haven't seen, but the shirts are up there. The hats are up there. Um, they got mugs and all kinds of silly stuff up there. I backpacks but once again the backpack was expensive and i didn't know the quality of it i didn't want to put a logo on something sell somebody backpack and then they send us an email hey my kid had this for two months and fell apart so i didn't want to mm-hmm. risk it but that being said you can head over to wtspwwii.com 
<laughs> it came to my attention that people weren't sure how to get there. I made it that way because, one, it was available. I don't know if you noticed, but when you go to whatsthescuttlebutt.com, it's kind of spelled funky because the proper spelling, the full What's the Scuttlebutt was already owned by somebody else. So when I first launched the podcast, that's why it's spelled a little funky, but and that's also why I bought WTSP World War WWII, just like you see World War II written out on the old TV shows on the books. Obviously, the, the Roman numeral, we had to use lowercase i. So WTSP WWII.com, or you can go to D 410.com to get there, but you can find a Patreon link and our YouTube channel and see all the photos that we talk about. Whenever we have guests on, you can go there, find the page that coincides with their uh, episode, get the proper links if you want to find them on social media. Maybe they're working on a project. So all that stuff is available at WTSP World War II, WWII.com. Jeff, find your sword. Yeah, you know, that's when you know you have too much stuff. I'm not even sure where the heck it was. It's It was out in my my outbuilding. <laughs> um, but I mean, nothing about this looks to me, it doesn't like look like a Japanese sword. I must look civil war in. That's exactly what I thought. Um, but like I said, I want to say, uh, there, I don't see any marking. There's a couple numbers, but other than that, I mean, there's, there's just nothing. Um, but I want to say, let me see if I can find the type. I want to say it was a 32. No, not type 32. I can't remember what the Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, type 32. Um, and when I look at images of it, this is it. It's just been painted. Type So type 32 Sabre was government-issued cavalry sword. It was first issued in 1889. And would be crafted until the end of World War II. Uh, though by the end of World War II, where they had been serving in Manchuria and China. So if you look at those pictures of a Type 32, and you can see there's kind of a strange design that runs down. Yeah. A lot of the pictures have it's like a two-tone. And it's there. It's just been painted over. So it looks very 19th century because it's... 19th century. Yeah, I'm on a website originally. called Bygone Blades. It says the Type 32 model 1899 had a um, machine blade that was manufactured at the Tokyo Hotel Kosho Arsenal. The sword saw service during the Russo-Japanese War, World War One, and into World War II. <clears throat> Two patterns of the Type 32 were produced. The first pattern, known as Ko, was issued to cavalry NCOs and had a blade length of around 833 millimeters. The second pattern was known as Atsu was issued to the Army NCOs and was shorter with a blade length of around 770 millimeters. Uh, let's see this example, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, um, the Steel D-Guard, which is what made us say it looks more Civil Warian. The uh, Steel D-Guard has a checkered steel backstrap and a dove head pommel. Does yours have the dove head on it on the end of the pommel? I don't know if it's actually a dove's head, but they call it a dove head pommel. All of which retain the original finish, and oh, that's that particular one. But yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's put some I mean, lacquer thinner on to get that spray paint off. Right, right. Yeah, it almost looks like the handle is made out. Of, the back strap looks like it's steel, and the front almost looks like engraved wood. Yeah, <clears throat> it could be. I mean, I haven't done anything with it. I've been afraid to, but um, just based off of like trying to do a visual idea on it, that. That's it. 
If you look down by the handle, down by the hilt, is there like a squeeze lever that would release the sheath, or is it broken off? Yep, that's exactly what it is. That's pretty cool. This one's got one just like that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The the squeeze lever? Yeah, a little squeeze button. Um, Yeah, and it it locks in. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of kind of like what the bayonets have on the back of them on the American bayonets to lock them onto the sheath. You might, I'm pushing it right there. That's cool. Same. Same same uh, design. Yeah, it's definitely wood and steel. So the forefront that would go underneath your fingers is wood grain, and then the back is yeah, it's a steel material. Well, that may Very be a cool. restoration project one day, but not for me. <laughs> Maybe my son. He's the one that identified it, so you know I credit him for that for sure. Well, not that you care, but it's always fun to know. A few of these examples are going for about six hundred bucks. Yep. In the non-spray painted form. <laughs> That's hey, that that adds like character. It's patina. No, see right? what you do is you tell people they painted it so that it wouldn't glimmer in the night. Yeah, that's it. Right. That's the ticket. Yeah, mm. that's it. It's a night bonsai <laughs> charge cavalry sword. <laughs> it's tactical. <laughs> now they probably spray painted it so they could stash it in the back of the closet or their crate and somebody wouldn't see it who knows people somewhere between 1945 and the present day people had a weird addiction with painting military stuff black how many times have you seen ammo cans uh jerry cans swords for whatever reason they love to spray paint crap black and they love to cut all the straps off of haversacks that's the two things i can tell you all those haversacks well, and rosette uh, bags. I went to college. The college kids cut the. I don't need that strap. <laughs> cut, cut, cut. It's like, oh no. Yeah. How about how about 1911 holsters? You see a lot of the leather dyed black. Mm-hmm. At post war. Yeah. For I sure. W- I wonder if that was a Vietnam thing. Because didn't they issue them in black in Vietnam? A lot of those 1911 cases. Possibly. Yeah. I would think by then. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. while Henry scurried off to do whatever he's doing let's get started and uh, hey jeff uh, what you reading <laughs> well man i am almost done with aj languth's patriots the men who started the american revolution i've got maybe one more night and i mentioned last week you know i think it would be cool to to go ahead and reread with the old breed um not 100 percent said on that but um that that's going to be coming up in the near future for sure um uh, like I said, I'm kind of torn between that or maybe doing. I do have a couple uh, books on Iwo Jima, but um, if you're interested in anything about the American Revolution, I will say that that book really spells it out. It's really well done, chronological order. A.J. Languth's L A N G G U T H Patriots, the men who started the American Revolution. Great read, Henry. What yes, you still sir. reading? Um, I finished Big Week, and I started Hang Tough by our good buddy, Jared Frederick. Great book. So I'm um, jumping off into that, really enjoying it. I'm enjoying the How way How far he, into that are you? Not that far. Not that far yet. I'm probably, my copy's upstairs, uh, probably around 50 pages, I would say. Well, you're, you're into it enough to, to see how nice it is to cover new ground with him. The yeah, source material it, for that book is fantastic. Yeah, and I like the way you guys know the project I'm working on with my dad's stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really like I've got a real vested interest 
and seeing how Jared laid that out, you know, using the heart of it is, is Dick's letters to Dietta Allman. And then, of course, Jared provides, he, he bridges it all together with his own narrative. And then Eric Gore. Not was, to, yeah. I don't mean to not mention Let's Eric Gore. But, um, but they string it together and, and create that cohesive narrative with their with their voice. So very interesting to me. And it provides great insight into Dick Winters and some of his, you know, non-airborne, non-first-hand account sort of thoughts on how he thought about the war life. going on, life, yeah. uh, physical fitness, people in other ranks, physical fitness, uh, his disdain for gold bricks. Um, mm-hmm. You definitely get a more well-rounded um, view of him as a person and as a leader. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to read Jared's book on Spears. Too. Yeah, I want to get that one next as well. Spears was one of my favorite characters in Band of Brothers. And there's so much mystery surrounding him. Yeah. We had a great chat with Jared. Jeff, were you on that night, or did you have to miss? No, no, I actually made that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. That was months ago. It was several months was, ago, yeah. That was oh, yeah. right when you first came on board, didn't it? Yeah, we. Um, had, I had him on twice before, I think. I had him on once before Jeff came on. I think I had him on the second time when it was just me and Jeff. He's been on the okay. – I think he's leading the board on return guest. You're probably thinking an earlier time, Jeff, because this was I was I've oh, been maybe. on the show for a little while because I mean I didn't even start working on my project till you know the end of the year, beginning of 2022. So oh yeah, no, it was when it was before you came on then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It was. Yeah. He's a good guy. Sound like a really interesting story and how he put that together so sure. i'm still halfway through the longest book or the longest day very good read um i thoroughly enjoyed it i was going to read a little segment tonight i thought was cool um when we all see omaha beach we think of that that bunker that concrete block it's up there that was there's a very and the way it's laid out i probably shouldn't talk about it. i should have just said it next week but whatever there's a very great description of how the basis of the, the commander pulled up in the Volkswagen. He gets out, walks down along a path along the sea ledge, goes through. No, I'm sorry. Pulls up, walks down a path that has barbed wire next to it, then goes down some stairs along the sea edge, goes through a cave, up roundabout stairs, and he's explaining what path you had to take to get into that damn bunker. And so, but you don't know that. You're, he's just talking about this weird path and these stairs and all the stuff. And like, wow, that's kind of a cool because you know you look at photo, you never think. What it was like to how do you got in there? But no, it's the I the description on how the effort it took to get in there and the security to prevent people from getting there is very cool. And there's a lot of great little in-depth things in there. It's a very good book. But I want to take my moment and what to read and to say I did fact sign up for Goodreads and um I was not familiar with this website. Um you guys should go ahead and sign up because it's very cool. You basically go in there and you search type in the books you've read and you can give them stars if you want you can write reviews you can put in the book you're currently reading books you want to read and that way if people do want to check up on us you know we can post our profiles on wtspworldwar2.com and then people can follow us there as well and uh we can take the what you're reading segment a little more for people actually want to see what we read in the past maybe stuff we talked about on episodes past like right now i just signed up for the show i have longest days what i'm currently reading I have Battleground Pacific in there. I got Band of Brothers, uh, 
sorry, Beyond Band of Brothers, the War Dick uh, Winners memoirs in there. I got with the old breed in there. China Marine I got in there. Citizen Soldiers, Challenge for the Pacific, Strongman Armed, Helmet for My Pillow. And that was just the ones I typed in 15 minutes before we went on the air. And so it's kind of cool. You can literally catalog all the books you've read. You can give them between a one and four star, five star review. And then if you want to actually write a review, you can. And so it's it's pretty cool. It's called goodreads.com. Yeah, look into that for sure. Yep, yep, yep. Look at that, guys. It's it's Monday. We went 105 minutes. It's probably the only podcast you've listened to this Tuesday that didn't bring up the Super Bowl one time. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. I didn't even watch it, but anywho. But I think that's just about going to wrap it up. Uh, Jeff, you got anything coming down the pike you want to get out there? Uh, well, just our, our Iwo Jima program slash author meet and greet with, with Dennis Blocker II. Uh, we've had him on the show before, and we'll have him on again. He's going to come out to our uh, Highland Lakes Air Museum and uh, talk about his grandfather's service in World War II and uh, kind of a kind of a twofold uh, topic. He's going to talk that and, and then also a little PTSD awareness and PTSD for – uh, trauma nurses and paramedics, that, which is uh, his personal story. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, we're going to have a couple table displays. You know, I've got a non-firing uh, woodpecker machine gun, and Japanese machine gun. We'll have on display a couple of Arasakas and uh, some of my combat gear and weapons that you would have seen from the American side. So we'll have multiple table displays for people to come through and see weapons and, uh, and equipment used by American and Japanese forces during the Battle of Iwo Jima. And I've got some Woody Williams... Um, uh, some cool Woody Williams merchandise from when I did a program with him and some sand from Iwo and things like that. So that's this coming Sunday on the anniversary, the 78th anniversary of the invasion of Iwo Jima, 19 February. Henry, do you got anything coming down the pike? Yeah, uh, this coming Sunday, I will be back on the We Happy Few podcast <clears throat> with Matt Leach uh, hosting and we're going to be on there with the author, Dick Kemp, who wrote this book, Last Man Standing, the First Marine Regiment at Peleliu. So Dick Kemp will be on there. I will be on there, and Saul David will be on there. So It's a nice panel. Um, huh? So that's a nice panel. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to talking to Dick Kemp. Uh, I've never met him. Um Interestingly enough, I'll, I'll throw this on there, too. So today I talked with a guy who first reached out to Dick Camp, trying to get to my family, talked to a guy named Mark Connor with the Library of Congress. They want my dad's Bible to preserve it and house it. So um, how do you feel about that? That's a tough decision. Man, or is it? You know, he started telling me, the things they have there, I mean, they've got original hand-drawn maps by George Washington. They've got Lewis and Clark's journal. They've got uh, a D-Day map from the Voggy, a, a guy named Mr. Voggy, who was a beach master. Um, his family handed over his full-color D-Day map that he carried, you know, to work off of as a beach master. They've got, you know, some phenomenal things. I mean, that's why I brought it up. Kind of interested in what you guys say about it, but I, I'm. I mean, the I mean, good look. news is it's on loan. You know, it's not like for if for some reason, eight years from now something needs. You know, it's not like you're giving it up permanently. But that's still 
I mean, that's still it, something it, that's kind of hard it, to. If I do this, and I talk to my brother about it, because I, you know, I'm the World War II voice of the family, but I wouldn't do this without. Yeah. Consulting with it. Cause I'll tell you guys, I mean, my dad's artifacts, you know how many of them I've got. A lot of them are at Auburn. I want to get them all at the, at the World War II museum in new Orleans. My mom was always really funny about the Bible. Mm-hmm. She just made me swear to never let it out of the house. And, but that was not a binding like deathbed. Sure. Do not, you know, that, that I, I know the context she meant that in, um, it would be, I mean, look, they can preserve it. Yeah. They, they're they experts at that. I mean, it, it could not be more prestigious than the Library of Congress. I was going to say that that kind of elevates, I mean, amongst World War II and PTO aficionados such as ourselves, we already hold your father in such a high pristine. But I think by having that there, it just raises him to a whole nother level. I, I'm thinking about it. I mean, my brother told me he's cool with it if, if you know, um, and it's paper, as Jeff can tell you. I mean, between the three of us, this guy's worked at more museums than any of us. I've worked at none. Sure. But, you know, that stupid photo right there, that's a that's a um, poster I got off eBay for $13. It's an original poster from World War II, but I knew that I didn't want it to fade. So now I got a $13 poster and a $150 frame with UV-protected glass, acid-free paper. I got the window covered up, and it's mm-hmm. still risk at fading. So to sure. preserve paper takes a lot of energy. And I know you got yes. that thing wrapped up and in a box, but Jeff can tell you. I, yeah. yeah. I'm boy, I'm glad I don't have to make that yeah, decision. Because I, me, I, you know, I think that would be something if I were Henry, I it would go to the Library of Congress upon my death. I feel like I would want to be able to touch it anytime I wanted to. Um, that's and when true. you were gone, maybe then would be the time. That's just me. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know, Henry. Man, that's. But then you don't live to see it being there. I don't know. That's really you, tough. But then, as someone in our position who quote unquote want to keep history alive, you got the aspect of well, more eyes are going to see it and keep it alive if it's on display. See, that's the whole thing with me trying to get my dad's stuff, excluding the Bible. It, in New Orleans. I mean, because for many, many years, I was like, no, I got this stuff. I want it. Nobody's getting it. But, but man, it's that. Think about how many people would get to see it. You know? Um, so, not to make... No I, I, that's, no, I think that's a very important conversation, and I'm sure our listeners may have something, and I don't want to brush over that. I mean, that's, that's a hard decision. Yeah. Well, I mean, the guy... The, to give the guy not to cut, just finish your thought, no, Jeff, but I want to let me say real quick. The guy said, "Look, you don't have to decide tomorrow or next week or next year." He said, "I just want to. That thing is a, is an iconic piece of American culture, and I just want to make sure that it's got a good home. I'm sure you're giving it a good home, but we would be honored to house it, preserve it, occasionally display it. You know, they've got millions of documents. I mean, come on, you know." It's not like it's going to be twenty four seven on display. Uh, it's it's. I'm thinking of it for posterity, knowing it would be well cared for. So, well, and I think know. Jeff's got a good point. I mean, that could be in your in your living will or whatever. If you know, God forbid, something happens. You know, that's a thought. Yeah, that I think that's how I would handle it. Only because I'd like to, you know, while you're into this. Um, 
yeah, I get the aspect of more people will see it there than at your house, but I don't know how important that is to you right now. I mean, like I said, to me, to, to be able to, to have something like that it, personally, you know, in your possession while you, uh, you know, with the platform that you have and being able to do some of these other podcasts and, and symposia and things like that. I don't know. Again, I, I, yeah, I'm glad I'm not making that choice because he's right. Yeah, that's an iconic document, well, and I mean, it deserves to live on long, you know, for generations. Because, um, because when people aren't watching the Pacific or you know hearing Henry's story, that's just going to be another Bible. We certainly don't want that. So, um, and that's the thing yeah, too thinking, is. That's not just a Bible with your father's note. That is the cornerstone. That is the backbone. That is the reason why we know his story and how he was able to, you know, that was his, this is a little inside baseball for you listeners, but that was his equivalent to a Google Drive document that we all write notes on to remind us what we want to talk about on the podcast. That was his, that was his punch card. That's why he yeah. you know, wrote everything down. Yeah. That was the, the key to this whole thing. That's it. It's a tough call, and it makes me think about. I've I've had uh, many times people will ask me, "Oh, what's your opinion on you know if I buy this uniform? Uh, it's an original uniform. It's in really good shape, um, but you know I don't want to buy a uniform if I can't wear it. So I'd have to get it a little you know altered. And what is your take on that? And to me, you know, of course, this is slightly this is a lot different than the Bible, um, but you know, when it comes to kind of telling the story and like Don said, keeping history alive. I always tell people alter it. Yeah, there's um, two billion of those things made. Well, not just that, but who who says it wasn't already altered? Yep. Because you know, typically uniforms came in 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 two different sizes, big and too big, uh, for you guys, for the guys you know wearing them, and so it may have already been altered. And and number two, and most importantly, if you don't alter it, you don't wear it. It's sitting in a closet. Nobody's ever seeing it. Mm -hmm. You you alter it. You don't change the history. You know, you you're altering the fabric. You're not altering the story. And being able to wear it, present it, talk to the public, show it off to kids at a program, wearing it, you know, for a living history event or whatever it is, to me does, uh, you know, has much more dividends for the person who originally wore it than, you know, hanging up somewhere never to be seen. So yeah, there's that fine line there. And to Jeff's point, especially when it came to trousers, it was. You know, they made a few different waist sizes, but the length was pretty much one length fits all. You had to have it cut and trimmed back. I mean, they weren't going to make 32, 34. 30, you know, it was 32, then mm. 83s. I mean, those legs are super long, and you, you had to go get them trimmed off and hemmed up. Right. Yeah. That's really that's really cool, Henry. I mean, what a cool way to, to top off this this episode talking that about. That came out of nowhere. I mean, I. Incredible. You know, the, they, yeah, the dude reached out to Dick Camp, and then he got to Layton. And then Leighton let me know, and the guy called my brother too. But but yeah, I'll I'll keep you guys. You know, we'll yeah. I'll let you know as I think more about it. Sure. Yeah, I think the two coolest artifacts you have is probably. I mean, the K bar is cool, but there's just something about that damn haversack that just yeah makes the hair stand up on my neck. Especially the fact that he painted it with you know has the camouflage paint on there. The daub. Yeah. Yeah. I look. I told you guys that last morning of the international conference. Richard they called Frank. that thing the Holy Grail, huh? When they called that thing the Holy Grail, well, the, he Richard Frank took Saul, my wife and son, and me. He said, "I want to take you guys through the Pacific Gallery personally, you know, because he designed it." And we had a delightful morning. 
went through it with Rich, and at the end of it, you know, again, at the end of it, not like everybody's parting company to go their separate ways to go home, and I just said, Rich, I got a great idea that will probably go nowhere, but here's an idea for how about a life-size diorama of that bunker on Ingecebus, you know, mannequins kitted out like they ought to be, in that in all that beautiful gear, and I said, augmented with the real life artifacts of Eugene Sledge. Yep. He said, Henry, it's a beautiful idea. I mean, I, all I can do is suggest it, but you know, I, I don't know, man. They the galleries are already designed and kind of already done. So yeah, but they refresh that every few years. Keep keep, keep people coming back. Yeah, I was gonna say that every ten years they got to revamp, redesign, remodel. Is, is it every ten years, Jeff? Is that what it Tip. is? Typically, okay, especially yeah. for a Good big place know. like that, yeah. But I'd love to see my dad's stuff over there. Yeah, we would too. You know, the at the archives at Auburn, where a lot of his stuff is, uh, just got an email this week that they at the Veteran Resource Center there in the Student Union Building, they want to pull his dress blue uniform, which they have there, out of the archives and display it. So the archivist was asking my brother and me what we thought about it and of course we were like yeah sounds you know we know you guys will take care of it so that'll that'll be a cool thing yeah knock the dust off of that i think on that note we're gonna wrap up this episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support and like always as we remind you earlier don't forget the valentine day stuff but other than that uh, thank you guys so much and we will talk to everyone next week This has been a Digital 410 production.